So we had this like decent sized truck pull into this small road, backing up into my parents' garage. The driver was so confused. He's like, this is your warehouse? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, where's your people unloading the truck? I'm like, it's me. What do you mean? And I spent, I think it was like six hours unloading the truck. It was definitely an interesting experience, but how it works, like you know nothing in the beginning and eventually... I didn't know how to build it. I just found someone that did. It was really bad in the early days, like it sucked, but it, it was good enough to work. And when once there's traction, you take some of the profits on the revenue and just reinvest it. So I think that's the attitude I took. Like I'm gonna come to work every day. I'm gonna give them my everything and I'm not gonna stop. I'm gonna be persistent and I'm gonna grind and I'm gonna adapt. But at the end of the day, this wasn't meant to be, then it won't be meant to be. And if it was meant to be, then it will be meant to be. My name is Izzy Rosenzweig. I am 34 years old and I am in Toronto, Canada. Nice. And Izzy, I-Z-Z-Y, is that your real first name? Yeah. So actually the real name is Yisroel, which is <laughs> Hebrew for Israel and Izzy short for Israel. So I had been going by Izzy my whole life. So people know me as Izzy. Makes sense. Makes it a lot easier too. And then, yeah, how old are you? 34. Well, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your business? So I'm the founder and CEO of Portless. Portless essentially is a very different way of doing supply chain logistics for direct-to-consumer companies. So for someone to properly understand what we do, it's good to kind of give a high level in what most companies do. So if you're a DDC business, traditionally you're, let's say, manufacturing 5,000 t-shirts you're putting it on a boat. It takes usually at least 30 days, most likely closer to 60 or 90 days to land in the States. You're bringing it in bulk, so you're paying import duties. Then you bring it to a 3PL location or your warehouse, and then you ship it to your customer. Simply from when you manufacture to when you can start selling, you need a lot of cash to be sitting in the water or in the container on the water at any given time. And then you can start selling to your customers. And our model with Portless is our fulfillment center is in Shenzhen. So it's in near most factories that people manufacture apparel or many other products. We do the pick pack in Shenzhen, so right next to people's factories. So people can send us stuff days post-production, usually two days post-production, we can get people stuff in our fulfillment center. And then we ship it right to the US and it's delivered to the customer within six days of the order coming in. So if a customer creates an order, Within six days, a USPS driver is delivering it to that customer's front door. So speed is great. From a consumer perspective, it's a fully local experience. It's a USPS tracking number. It's an American driver dropping it off. Everything is in English. Packaging is based on the customer, custom packaging. But the brands that use us, it is, I call it, game-changing to their business. So instead of them having money stuck for two to three months at a time in inventory, and lead times being two to three months, they could turn inventory to cash two days post-factor production. They could be more agile in their inventory. They could constantly restock because we're right next to their factories. And there's a ton of other benefits, including if your order for your customers is worth under $800 value, it is duty-free. So you have lots of duty savings. Container costs go away and shipping rates are super cost-effective. So half a pound, $5.86, anywhere in continental US, or pick and pack rates are just a buck per order for up to three units. And warehousing, we don't want to ever charge you warehousing. As long as we are shipping your products within 60 days, you won't see any warehousing fees on your bill. If you need a store with us beyond 60, not a big deal. We, we give very cost-effective warehousing rates. 
But by doing this model, customers or brands could have cash in the bank. So the cash is not stuck in the water. They could use that to hire, could use that for marketing. And there's immediate savings with great shipping rates, no import duties, and no container costs. It just immediately game-changing for their business. And for expanding international, it's the turn of the button. You turn on you know, Shopify markets, you turn on United Kingdom, you turn on Europe, and we could ship it to those customers directly from our fulfillment center, fully local experience. Yeah, I guess you kind of answered my question there at the end. If it was just for someone, again, I like making simple examples, like you, the t-shirt company, you're saying if they made 5,000, we're assuming that they probably made it in China, right? So that's what you're talking about. But if, let's say if my product was made in Mexico or South America, yep. it can still work the exact same way? Great question. So for us, we're only based in China. We do have infrastructure being built in Vietnam that would be ready in 2024. But for now, we can help people that manufacture in China, mainly. I'll add one caveat there. We do have customers, let's say 70% is manufactured in China and 30% is manufactured in Vietnam or Thailand or India. And what we do is we help them bring their product from those countries into China. So you have all your product under one roof, you know, service international markets and service US markets. Do you have any other examples of savings or that way? I think the more examples we can probably give up front might help anyone who's brainstorming. So yeah, go ahead and give us some. Yeah. So container costs just disappear. That doesn't even exist. Dryage costs disappear. Import duties disappear. So right away, just from that, there is immediate savings. Then you could look at what are you currently paying your 3PL? Like what's your pick and pack rate? Like we've seen on the low end, maybe $1.50, but a lot of it at $2.50. A lot of 3PLs charge inbounding fees, label fees, like a million fees. Warehousing fees are expensive. So even from like an apples to apples, you look at our cost versus what you're currently paying, you're going to see immediate savings. And that's besides the benefits of all this additional cash flow and opportunity to go into international markets. Okay. Well, so what does it cost for someone to start using Portless? It's no commitment. It's basically you only pay us if you use us. So if someone reaches out, we kind of jump on a Zoom call. We get to know you like, hey, what's your product? Is it manufacturer in China? If it is, most of our customers are usually on Shopify. We have a Shopify app. Within 15 to 20 minutes, you're integrated from a technical perspective. They send usually you know, like, hey, let's check out 50 units, 100 units. We usually ship it for them. They get blown away and then they just keep sending us more products and we keep helping them fulfill for their business. So what was the smallest amount? Is there is a dollar wise or quantity amount? Like again, give us some other examples other than like t-shirt companies. Yeah, so apparel is a big one. We also do, let's call it cosmetics, jewelry, phone accessories, small kitchen appliances. Anything I would say, if your product is under three pounds, you're going to have, besides for great cash flow and access to international markets, you're going to have day one savings. As your product goes beyond three pounds, I would say our prices might be a little bit more when you look apples to apples. So you might be paying, let's say something like Deliver 12 bucks, and we might be $14, but then you have cash flow benefits, access to international markets, as well as import duty savings in our model. So basically, it sounded like you said you, you can get rid of like import tax or tariffs as well? Yeah. So that basically is under, it's called section 321, the de minimis rule. And almost every country in the world has it, which is if an individual package is being sent to an individual customer in that country, as long for the United States as the order value of that order is under $800 is duty-free and import duty-free. So you still got to charge your sales tax. Like you got to pay your state, your sales tax, but import duties, which for example, apparel could be anywhere from 20 to 38%. 
that just doesn't happen in this model. You don't need to pay import duties because the individual package is worth under $800. Australia, it's a thousand Australian dollars. So every country has their threshold, but I would say almost every single country in the world has some version of this, different thresholds, but same idea. And so if I wasn't using you and I was going directly from, let's say, the factory, if I ordered like $1,000 worth of shirts, because let's say I'm selling them to a 1,000 customers or just a dollar a piece or whatever it is, that because I got over that $800 threshold and I'm not sending it just to one person, I would have to pay tariffs. But using Section 321, using your model, I don't have to. Exactly. Exactly. Seems like it's killer all around. I, I don't know if I'm missing anything else as far as you did say about inventory and having money instead of having it tied up in inventory. Yeah, I'll, I'll go deeper in that. So basically, if you think of traditional boats, which is the way people bring in product today, they have to wait probably, let's say it'd be safe two months before they can sell that inventory, which means you never want to be out of inventory. You never want to overlap. You never want to be out of stock and then wait two months to get that inventory. So very often brands, they'll buy four months of inventory. So two months buffer plus two months of bow time. And they're always sitting on four months of inventory. Now that only exists because it takes probably around two months to get your product. But if you don't need to wait two months to sell your product, rather you could sell it two days after the factory is done, then all of a sudden what happens is you don't need four months of inventory. You could just look at how long does your factory take for production? Let's say it's 10 days. Then you say, okay, you always want a two-week buffer. So you could have 30 days of inventory, right? And then you're constantly going, you know, as you're selling through, you're telling your factory to go into production or you're buying it from your factory in 30-day cycles. So instead of needing to put, sometimes people put millions of dollars in inventory for four months at a time, that's dead money. It's not doing anything. It's just sitting in dead inventory. And we're saying there's a better way. And back in 2021 or, or 2020, when money was cheap, all right, who cares? Money's sitting in inventory. But now it's you know 8%, 10%, 15%, depending where you're borrowing from. So that money, A, is anyways dead money. It's not doing anything. It's expensive money. Better to put that money into you know hiring people, paying for marketing, building partnerships. So that's what we mean when there's better ways to use money rather than inventory sitting in your warehouse in the States for far longer than you would really need. And if someone wanted to learn more, where would they go and to contact you? Yeah. So we have a great website, portlist.com. We have case studies. You can learn all about us there. Right there, you can reach out directly through our contact form. Me or someone on my team reach out to you, book a call, learn more about your business. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm always posting supply chain and factory related information that I, I find fascinating. And anyone that DMs me, we always get back to them. So it looks like if I'm doing like, write us a message, you kind of ask like how many monthly orders do you ship? I think is that how you kind of qualify if you can work with somebody or not? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if they're doing underneath a thousand monthly orders, is it not worth it? Yeah. If it's under a thousand, in most cases, it doesn't make sense for us to onboard. We tell everyone to reach out to us anyways. We'll see based on how many people are currently onboarding at that moment. But yeah, if you're on the smaller size customers, that's not our typical customer. The ones that are typical size customers doing north of a thousand dollars a month. As far as like pricing structure, so I mean, you told us all the benefits, but obviously people have to pay you to use you. So what would they be looking at? We make our pricing structure like we try to make it dead simple. So unlike other three PLs, there's inbounding fees and label fees and printing. That all goes away. There's only three things you got to know about. We charge a pick and pack, which is one dollar per order, which includes up to three units in that package. Every additional unit beyond three is twenty five cents. 
Then we charge a shipping rate, which is basically the USPS delivered to your customer's front door. So from our fulfillment center on a plane, delivered to your customer's front door, that is basically based on shipping weight. So half a pound, roughly $5.88. UK and Europe is even cheaper. And then for warehousing fees, if you send us inventory and we're shipping it out within 60 days, there are no warehousing fees. You only get two charges on your invoice. But if you need a warehouse with us longer than 60 days, that's fine. We have what you'd call a typical warehousing fee, the way you would pay locally in the States as well, which is basically by cubic foot. And so do you consider yourself a 3PL? Yeah, traditionally, we're essentially at our base for a 3PL business. And we're a very American English speaking 3PL, but with all our infrastructure in China. So you get all the benefits of this cross-border model, but you're having the experience like you're talking to us in Slack. We have Slack groups with our customers. Everyone's speaking English. You know, you need custom packaging. We're helping you with custom packaging. But fundamentally, we're a 3PL that uses a different model than your typical 3PL. So we call it direct logistics or direct shipping, where you don't need to go on a boat. You know, you don't hit the shipping ports. We want you to go portless with us. And hence the name, huh? Exactly. <laughs> and so I'm looking at the integration. So is the easiest way, if someone already has like a Shopify account or if they're selling on Amazon, those are like kind of the two that I'm seeing, or WooCommerce, I've seen a lot too. So are maybe those, I see Squarespace, but that kind of just depends on how big your website is. But maybe those top three that I'm just even looking at or getting a feel for. If you're selling on those platforms and you're doing over a thousand units per month, then just give you a call and see how much it would cost, it sounds like. Exactly. And there's no commitments, right? Like there's no contracts that you have to give us. Ten, like there's no money up front. You only pay us as we ship your product. So what we say, we encourage customers, crawl, walk, run, test us out. If this is intriguing, which we're confident will be, we'll just keep growing our business with you. You'll save more money, have better cash flow. And from a tech integration, it's one Zoom call. You download a Shopify app, which is almost as simple as downloading an app on your iPhone. And within 30 minutes, you're fully integrated. Sounds too good to be true. Yeah. You know what? And what's interesting is it wasn't always like this. So I've been doing this for 10 years. The first, I would say seven to eight years, it wasn't very efficient. It used to be like a two-week delivery. And the tracking numbers weren't USPS. They were Chinese tracking numbers which is why people never use this space. And very often people know about this space, like, oh, the dropshippers use this space or Sheen uses this space. And they're not wrong. Meaning A, in the first eight years, delivery was really hard and very confusing for customers because it was Mandarin. And the people that took advantage of it were mainly people that didn't take quality control on their brand. So we say, first of all, A, it is 10X better now. We're talking about under six days to US, under five days to Europe. And the brand, the quality of the product is all based on the brand. So if you have a great kid's clothing brand or a kid's shoe brand or a jewelry brand, et cetera, you're obviously controlling the quality. So as long as you're controlling the quality of your brand, the magic here of running a really efficient business is really in the logistics. And that's where we come in and help you and help you just crush that part of the business. So say I have a Shopify store again, and I'm doing well, I already have my connection in China, I'm selling 10,000 units, right, a month. How would it normally work? Did they already have a 3PL in America, and then they're paying all these extra fees, and that's kind of how it's coming in. But if we started using you, just tell us the difference, like just the transition of someone listening. Yeah, great question. So essentially, it's exactly as simple as that. So in today's model, the guy that makes 10,000 t-shirts, he would arrange for a pickup for either a broker would arrange to get picked up in the factory, drive it to the shipping port, put it on a container, 
And probably two months later, it's getting added to your 3PL in Missouri. But in our model, the only difference is that truck that picks it up is not taking it to ship a container. It's taking it to our fulfillment center in Shenzhen. And then we inbound it. The app that we're connected immediately updates the inventory to the customer store. So all of a sudden, they went from zero inventory to 10,000 t-shirts. And they can start marketing it. And they start selling it to their customers. And then they make a transaction with a customer. Within a business day, that tracking number gets synced back to their store. And they take that tracking number and Shopify does this automatically and sends an email directly to the customer. Your product is en route. That customer looks at it, looks like it's coming from LA or New York or Chicago, and it gets delivered within six days. I know you talked about the transition and what happened, but maybe you can just go in a little bit more detail using that same example of like 10,000 t-shirts. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I The context of why I am even started this business is because I was actually... I was a brand. I started as a home and kitchen and home decor brand in this cross-border model space. So I've been doing the cross-border side for you know 10 years. And we would sell kitchen accessories and home accessories and home decor, all shipped right from China. In those early days, you know, we still shipped tons and tons of orders in this model because we were able to reduce our prices because we had great cash flow and we had great margins and all these savings. But the delivery times weren't the best. So even our customers in that brand, they would have to wait two weeks for delivery. They would get a tracking number that wasn't in English. It was very often in Mandarin or it stopped working. So that was the early days of this model. But then over the last two years, because of the volume, the sheer volume of this model between Sheen, Temu, and Quincy, more and more companies start adding better and better efficiencies to this model. So already going back two years, all of a sudden, delivery times start to massively improve. And there was no longer any Chinese tracking numbers. It was all USPS-facing tracking numbers. So all of a sudden, what happened was it went from like, oh, I'm getting it from overseas, and it's going to take me weeks, and I don't know what's going on, to all of a sudden, a very normal local experience. You're making a transaction. You're having a USPS number. It is delivered within six days to anywhere in the States. That's like a very traditional experience for a DDC brand. So we saw that transition. And as we saw that transition, it was incredible for our customers, incredible for us as a business. So what happened was our investors said, hey, could you talk to the other portfolio companies? We have other companies we invested in that manufacture in China. And we start saying like, hey, would you want to leverage our infrastructure? Because it took us over two years to build that infrastructure. And we know it's, it's very difficult to build you know, legal entities and bank accounts and partners in China. We've been doing, you know, we were there for 10 years and we had our own fulfillment center for over two years. And everyone said yes. And then we was like, huh, that's interesting. You know what? Instead of just doing this for our own brand and, you know, spending tons of money on marketing and running branding, we saw the bigger opportunity of like, hey, let's help thousands of brands leverage this because consumers love DTC. There's $176 billion of DTC revenue in the United States. And the stores that service them, and there always will be stores to service demand, have hard cash flow. And what we're saying is it doesn't need to be bad cash flow. There's another way to do business. And that's how we kind of evolved into this space. And now we're basically doing this at 100%. Now we only service DDC brands. So that's kind of been the evolution of the space for us and how we service customers. What was the name of your furniture brand? It was a home and kitchen accessory brand. So it was called Browse. B-R-W-S-E? B-R-O-W-Z-E dot com. Okay, gotcha. Is it, are you still running it? So we have like two, three products and we don't run it as a brand. What we do is we test new partnerships, new carriers. We're testing Vietnam. So whenever we test a new infrastructure, we just test it with our internal products 
not at any crazy scale, just to make sure we get out all the kinks and everything's working smoothly. And then we introduce it to our customers. Listeners, in the digital realm, challenges are plenty, but so are the solutions. Buried by online competition, elevate with Persist SEO's digital marketing. Are you a small local business feeling dwarfed by industry giants? It's time to stand tall with Persist SEO's Visibility Boost. Inconsistent leads got you down? Well, Persist SEO's website optimization is the game changer you've been waiting for. Cold calls going cold? Your website can be the magnet that attracts clients. Invisible on search engines? Persist SEO can make you the star of Google. Does the maze of Google bureaucracy have you tangled? Well, let the pros at Persist SEO guide you through it. Do you have high acquisition costs? Well, guess what? Persist SEO will fine tune your Google ads for optimal results. The solution to your digital dilemmas is just a call away. Dial 770-580-3736 or visit INeedSEO.help for a complimentary website audit and consultation. With Persist SEO, every problem has a digital solution. So I know you say you just kind of use that as a training for whatever, but I mean, are you still personally like making money off that too? No, like it's, it's so it's very low scale. It doesn't lose money. Like very often many brands will lose money in the first transaction and then make money over transactions over the coming months. It doesn't lose any money, but it, it doesn't do any real scale. You know, it does a few hundred orders a month just so we're testing always new channels, new carriers, new countries. It's not a revenue driver. Yeah. At any point, was it like a revenue driver for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, back in the day, we were doing millions. We would do in our highest, we did about 50 million of revenue. But what happened was 2020 obviously was the craziest year. We did almost 50 million of revenue. That was A, during COVID times and B, before Apple released their privacy update. So what happened was Apple released their privacy update. I think that was maybe end of 20, mid 2021. And all of a sudden, marketing that was very efficient before the Apple privacy update was pretty bad after the privacy update. So we had our unit economics, how much money we make every transaction, very down pat. But the moment that Apple changed that, all of a sudden marketing efficiencies changed. And we couldn't make as much money as we were anymore, which is why we went deeper and deeper into supply chain and fulfillment centers and reducing costs across the board. And that kind of led us further and further into this model. But yeah, at its heyday, we're growing 100% year over year, millions and millions of shipments before we went full-fledged into Coreless. I noticed you said us a couple of times. So who, who do you mean by us? I mean, me and the team. <laughs> so we're like, uh, I think the magic happens with the team. I'm a sole founder and CEO, but I have people with, you know, that have been with me since the beginning and it's us as a team that make all this happen. That makes sense. I mean, even when I started my own like brokerage company and it was just me, I always say us to anyone listening because I always had a virtual assistant at least anyways, and it makes you sound bigger and, you know, but I was just kind of asking on that scale. So how many clients and customers do you have today? Yeah, we have dozens of customers. So just kind of give you the timeline here. We were doing this for ourselves for over 10 years, millions and millions of shipments. We have our infrastructure. We've been doing this business for a very long time. Then about eight months ago is when we started to open it up to other brands. Originally, it was just our investors, other portfolio companies. And then we really just opened it up to the market at large. So we work with companies that do 
200,000 orders a month and as low as companies that do, or smaller companies do 1,000 orders a month. But that's like the range of customers we service. And where are they located? So interesting, I would say most are in the States, but we do have a decent amount in Australia. Australia has been an interesting one. I think Australian DTC brands, because they're so far away from the core you know, market of the US, and Australia is a smaller opportunity to begin with, they think international very quickly. So we have quite a bit of uh, Australian customers we service. We have a few UK customers, but I would say most of our brands are based in the States. Can you just tell us about the expansion from when you're working on your own company and kind of building this back in, and then how many clients you helped in this portfolio that you said with your investors? And then like you said, it sounds like maybe you have 20 or 30 customers today. Yeah. So again, when going back, just let's say about a year prior to that was no, we didn't service anyone outside our own business. Then we got uh, introductions from our investors with portfolio companies that we added eight originally in the first cohort. And what we saw was pretty much everyone in that cohort was just increasing their business with us. So in the beginning, like, oh, let's try the US market. They're like, hey, how does it work? How do we go international with you guys? And it started from a subset of their excuse to now essentially onboarding 100% of their business. And when you see customers like that, that kind of taste out the opportunity and then go and dive in because the savings are so large and the cash flow is so good and the opportunity is so good. We're like, okay, let's just not only do this for portfolio companies, let's open up to essentially everyone. And that's like six months ago, we opened the portlist.com website, named the portlist brand, you know, built its own entity. And now since then, it's been all like, we haven't done any marketing other than joining podcasts and being a content creator on LinkedIn and Twitter, but it's all been CEOs recommending to other DTC founders to reach out to us or people finding us through our organic posts or, or content. And now it is, it's, I would say just under 40, either live slash also more being onboarded. Yeah, that's where we're holding today. Yeah, well, it seems pretty interesting. I mean, it sounded like you kind of went from like a product guy where you're making your old product browse, B-R-O-W-Z-E. And then you went to kind of being a tech guy, it sounds like, if that's a right way to put it, of you building kind of this back end and then helping your company first and then helping these other companies. Does that sound about right? Exactly. Went from essentially brand to being tech-enabled supply chain. And just to go on that for a second, if you think about the pillars of direct consumer businesses, Shopify solved software. And I used I was running our e-com business before Shopify was very big. Magento, WordPress, all that type of stuff. But Shopify made it dead simple. Then Stripe made credit card processing dead simple. But supply chain is still very messy. And that's where we were living in for such a long time. And we see such a clear opportunity where we want to pay people's supply chain as a dashboard solution. So, you know, integrating your factories, our fulfillment center, constantly restocking quickly. You don't need to have that much inventory risk. And really being a pillar of the direct consumer toolbox for brands that want to grow at very cash efficient strategies. Well, when you're building this back end, could you just maybe go in a little bit more detail? Is like, do you have any tech experience or what did you need to know in order to build this versus building a consumer brand like you did before? Yeah, great question. I actually think. There was no better, let's call it experience to serve a consumer business than being a consumer business for 10 years. So I've lived, I would say, through every single pain point. Because originally when I got started, I wasn't doing cross-border. In the early days, I was bringing containers. And every time I brought a container, I brought it in, I would sell the product, we did well with it. But it was a very stop-and-go experience. So I felt the pain points of containers, 
I felt the pain points of not being able to scale aggressively because there's only so much inventory risk you could afford at any given time in the traditional model. I felt the pain of going international when I went from Canada to the US and then the US and, and beyond that. So A, as a brand, I was exposed and we had to build our own tech. So I spent a bunch of years building consumer brand facing tech for our customers as a brand owner. And I had all the pain points and leveraging that. And we built really deep, right? Which is why we built a performance center, our own technology for assorting packages in advance and how we get it from factories. And to me, that was like, there is no better lessons to learn to service your customer, which now is brand owners. Like I've been in your shoes. I've built all of that and I've felt all the pain points. And this is how I solved it for us and kind of really excited to solve it for you guys as well. Well, how did you build it though? Oh, we had an engineer. Like I didn't actually build it myself. I'm not an engineer myself, but we had software engineers that would build the tech side. We had our team in China that built the infrastructure side. And that comes back to the us, right? It's like a team between tech, supply chain, infrastructure, then it all has to work together. So we built it for ourselves with software engineers and boots on the ground. And did you have money backing you in order to do this? Great question. So we're venture backed. When I started the business, I grew it organically to about 5 million of revenue without any outside capital. You're talking about browse, right? Exactly. Right. So we grew that to 5 million of revenue without outside capital. Then we started getting venture funding and we're growing like 100% year over year. So once we took outside capital, it gave us more room to start innovating around tech, around investments in supply chain. But yeah, we're, we're venture backed. So it gave us the ability to invest in all these areas. And browse, you started basically 2012, I'm looking. Yeah. So that, that was the early days. I mean, there was definitely evolutions of this business in the early, early days. Funny enough, we started as a daily deal site in Canada and it was importing products by containers, so like a very different business. Then it evolved to a marketplace model. Then it evolved to the cross-border marketplace. So it kept evolving over time, which is why I lived in so many different parts of the pain points of a brand owner, like back from the container importing to marketplace model to taking product ownership and doing QC and photography and copywriting. So yeah, it started in 2012 and it just kept evolving until we're in the model we were today. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll get into details a little bit later, but just the general outlook of it. So if you started this in 2012, let's just say beginning of 2013, the browse brand that we discussed, mm -hmm. how many years did you do it where you were doing it the same way as everybody else? Was it like three years, five years, or what was the timeline of that? Yeah. So I would say from... 2012 to 2016, I was doing it the same way as everyone else was doing it. Then from 2016 on, it went cross-border. Okay. So let's just talk about the differences real quick again. Like, so 2012 to 2016, you're basically buying a lot of product from China, having it shipped to your own personal 3PL and like where? Can you just tell us what that process was like? So at least even people listening who don't know, at least understand the differences. Totally. So we were buying in bulk, being shipped through containers. It would come to Toronto, Canada. I had a fulfillment center in Toronto, Canada, and a 3PL that I was using in Pennsylvania to service our US and Canadian customers. So I'd have to lay out a lot of money to buy product in bulk, have it in Canada and the States, and we would sell it on our website and ship from those two locations to our Canadian customers and US customers. Were you on Amazon as well? I never did Amazon, actually. I was always running it on my own website. I got pretty good understanding of the marketing side of the business. So we always drove our own traffic. And were you just doing that through like Facebook ads and stuff? Exactly. Facebook, Instagram, all that type of stuff. 
Okay. So, or if I saw it on X today, like I see that that's kind of the only social media I really use, but you'd have been one of those consumer brands where I click on it. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. So you're doing it normal 2012, 2016. And then in 2016, do you just decide, Hey, I need to do it a little bit differently? Yeah, no, I got very lucky. So I met the former CFO of Alibaba. He's retired, lives in Toronto. And I met him through a networking event. He's like, by the way, there's like this really interesting space of cross-border commerce. Got to look into it. And he was one of my earliest advisors in this cross-border space. And he also became an investor. And that introduction got me to other like really top operators in the space, which also joined as advisors and, and operators in our business. And that's how it started. So like just from like a chance meeting, I'm like, oh, I got to look into the space and understand it better to being the core business pretty much not long after that. And what was the name of that Alibaba guy? His name is Sam Yen. He's the former CFO of Alibaba. Oh, CFO? Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, didn't the CFO, isn't Chinese government still have him locked up or something like that? No, no, that's the uh, CEO. He's not locked up. I think people didn't know where he was for a while. I think it was under the radar. That's Jack Ma. I, th- I think now you see pictures of him going around, but I think for a while he was pretty under the radar. Probably by force. Or just like, yeah, like maybe stop talking against us. <laughs> right. Not, yeah. I'm not sure the details there. But no, this is the former CFO that's since been retired for a while. That's what I said. I said CEO, but I was making sure. I was just like, wow, is that the guy who went over there, you know? Yeah. I gave his location. He's in Toronto. Go for dinner. <laughs> I was going to delete that portion. That's what I was going to make sure, you know, just to make sure that your guy's good. But okay. And then so after you met him at a conference thing, that's when you started integrating like, okay, maybe there's a way to make things more efficient shipping. And then that's what you've basically been working on ever since. Exactly. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, we can get more of the details, but I appreciate you kind of giving that general outline. So why don't we go ahead and rewind it back to wherever you want in your story, obviously before browse, and then just kind of tell us how old you are and what year we're starting at. And we'll kind of just go from there. Yeah. So for me, I I definitely wasn't on this path of entrepreneurship. Definitely entrepreneurship is in my family. And I'll cover that in a second about my grandfather. But I, I was actually, I'm an Orthodox Jew and I grew up in a path, let's say, where I'm actually an ordained rabbi. So originally my path was really being an ordained rabbi at a synagogue somewhere. But growing up, I've always had a passion for business. I had like I ran small businesses growing up. I used to import different stuff, like decor stuff for Jewish holiday, which is kind of how I got into, I guess, importing to begin with. And I just always enjoyed it. So even though I was going down this path of potentially being a rabbi, I was also running a business between breaks and after hours. And I just loved it. And essentially, this is other than these side hustles and side businesses, Browse was really the first business I started when I was 24. Prior to that, I was in school and I was learning and ran side hustles. And then from you know 2012, really just starting this, which was meant to be a small e-commerce business and just compounding and growing and, and adapting. Well, why don't you touch on your family, the entrepreneurship? I know you're going to say something about that. Yeah. So it's definitely in my blood. So my grandfather was originally from Poland, survived the Holocaust. His entire family was wiped out. He had one sister in Canada. So he immigrated to Canada like 1945 or 46. And then he started working in a factory. And what's interesting is if you think about the evolution of manufacturing in general, in the 1950s, most manufacturing was done locally. And in Toronto, there's probably like, for sure, Canada at large, probably a hundred factories that dealt in the clothing business. So he started working in one and then eventually started his own maybe uh, 1955. 
And he started to build his own factory business and he was doing really well, right? And he brought his family into it. My dad joined eventually. And what happened was in the 1980s, that's when shipping containers became industrialized. So prior to the 1980s, ships existed, but they were difficult to move product around. They didn't have it in containers. So you would load a ship or come to a port. They would spend up to two weeks unloading a boat, which is like very inefficient. And it'd take a long time and boats and ports are backed up. And then finally, they're like, you know what? If we just made every single shipment in a container, right? 20 feet or 40 feet. And now we could pile hundreds or thousands of these containers in these monster boats. That unlocked this massive opportunity manufacturing overseas and cost efficiently to bring in in bulk to countries around the world. And when that happened, all of a sudden competitors are coming up. And these are really the same or better products that my grandfather's manufacturing for much better pricing. And my grandfather, we didn't get upset. We're like, you know what? Customer needs to win. The customer needs to get the best product for the best price. So they end up going very niche. They got very niche in their manufacturing and they end up going on for a whole bunch more years. But fundamentally, most factories made three choices. Either they fought the change that was happening and they went out of business, or they went very niche and they stayed in business, or they saw the change that was happening and they jumped with that change. They went overseas, they found partners, they found partner factories, started their own factories and did extremely well. And I know people you know, in all three buckets, I know families that refused to pivot and no longer around, went niche like my grandfather, or people in, right in the 70s and 80s started partnering with factories and did extremely well. So I grew up where supply chain totally disrupted an industry. And for me, this is, and, and you know, that's first of all, my family's been an you know, entrepreneur, my father and grandfather. But to me, most importantly, was watching how this one change disrupted an entire industry. And for me, this is 1980s all over again. So this new model, instead of containers being industrialized, it's cross-border air logistics getting really good and efficient. And all of a sudden, again, this is not for everyone. Meaning if you're a retail store, if you're Walmart, you're Amazon, you need to bring in my boats. But finally, a DTC owner could compete because you could play a different game. You don't need to play in the same arena as Amazon because you have a different supply chain. And for me, this is the early days. And the brands and the businesses that jump on board early will get the upswing of this opportunity. So yeah, that's you know a little bit about my family history, but kind of seeing history uh, repeat itself. My last name, which is, is a very renowned last name on the island. There are only two branches of this family. One is extremely rich. What I mean by rich is this family, they're billionaires. So that's you. I'm the other brand. <laughs> That's what you want to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if you want to jump on a call with yours truly and discuss how to become a billionaire, well then join Patreon today. So you were born and raised in Toronto? I was born and raised in Toronto. Okay. And that's where your granddad started his company was in, I know you said Canada. Yeah, Toronto. Okay. And uh, I guess the dad eventually, so what was the name of the company that he started? Yeah. It was called New Fashion Dress. It did wedding clothing for Mother the Bride. That was their niche area. Originally, they were much broader clothing manufacturer, but as competition got tighter, with containers, they went into Mother the Bride wedding dresses. Okay. So before he did all types of like women's clothing? 
he did all types. He did like sport jackets and they did leather jackets and trendy clothes. But for the more mass market, that got much more competitive. So they went very niche and end up going wedding dresses, mother of the bride, high-end wedding dresses, mother of the bride. And, you know, I used to help. I used to go to the factory, you know, it was you know, right around the corner from my house for 20 minutes of my house. And I would go on Sundays very often and lay out the materials and help the people with the sewing and the buttons and the, all the, all those details. But yeah, that's where they went niche with new fashion dress. Okay. But your grandfather started his own factory in Toronto. He wasn't using a Chinese factory. Exactly. So the 1950s, that's the way it was done. No one was using overseas factories because there wasn't an official way to move inventory. Right. So now that's where I want to hear even the transition for your grandfather. I know you said he went more niche into this, but did he go find a factory in China to start making the same thing y'all were doing in Toronto? No, he never did that. So my grandfather and father, they just went niche. So instead of competing for mass market clothing, they stayed in Toronto. Their factory you know, wasn't as big as it used to be. And they end up servicing a niche market of high-end wedding dresses for Mother of the Bride. And that started in the 80s. But like, again, the business ran till probably about 2015. And that ended up being their niche area. I mean, makes sense. So I mean, with that, like, how big was his company? I guess at, at his pinnacle, as far as like, just even employees or just get an idea? Yeah, I, I, he wasn't like massive, massive. So in those days, there were tons of these, let's call it mid-sized factories. I think he had maybe 20 people working for him. Their main market was Toronto, Montreal, a bit of New York. Like even those days to sell in New York was such a big deal. You have to drive there. You have to meet the salespeople. You had a broker. It was like business was just so much harder or so much less globalization. But yeah, that I would say like, I wouldn't know the revenue numbers, but I knew he had about like probably 20 to 30 people working for him through those times. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good size, you know, especially back then. And then, you know, I just feel like it's much easier trying to figure this stuff out with internet, you know, building a company back then, honestly, it's like, maybe people went to the library to figure stuff out. I don't know. Or it's just hard knocks. Yeah. I mean, he worked in it. He started as a worker in a factory for 10 years until he decided to go on his own. But yeah, I guess if you're getting into new, you either got to get the experience under someone or you got to get books. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you got kind of that because you were born in like 88, right? End of 88 or so. So that was already kind of established, but it seems like, yeah, you said all the way up to 2015, he had this business. Did it eventually he close it down? Yeah. So my dad took it over. My dad ran it 2015. And then eventually, again, like competition gets harder and harder, but he wanted also not to be on the factory. Like it was, it's hard physical work as well. So my dad got out of it in 2015. But it's pretty neat. I guess anyone who's listening now and starting a business, it sounds like you've learned a lot just from being a fly on the wall of going into the factory and trying to understanding this type of stuff. Because if you don't have a someone in your family who's in business, I think it's kind of hard to learn, at least when we were growing up, you know? I mean, maybe it's a little bit easier to look at YouTube and all the fake millionaires telling you what to do, right? But yeah, I, I guess it sounds like it was an awesome experience for you. So I guess maybe that's a great thing for people to think if they're building their own business and hopefully successful that your kid could also kind of be interested in being able to show them like how things kind of work. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people are like such huge fans of internships. Either your family's in the business and you're learning from them, or you'd be like, hey, I want to help your business grow. You don't have to pay me a lot. I just want to learn because experience is like very often worth more than the salary or whatever that they pay, which is obviously less for internships. But that's where knowledge investments made, right? That's like worth more than any amount of salary. Well, and it's cool because even though you said you've just been doing the browse thing for like the last 10 years, really, you've been understanding this stuff since you were basically born. I mean, we're talking about almost 30 years of experience of kind of seeing these markets and everything. So I think that definitely helps anyone who 
just kind of understand, like when you said you had like dozens of clients, maybe 40 today. And I, I really think like, I believe you on what you're saying, because you've said you've seen all these things that, yeah, you might only have like, quote unquote, 40 clients right now. But I could easily see how this is the beginning of a tipping point to make things easier, less inventory and whatnot by using your company, Portless Today. So Exactly. And like, for us, these 40 clients, like some of them, from like a volume perspective, are very large, but we see this could help thousands of customers in the future. So we're just getting started. We're just scratching the surface. Like we don't do any marketing. We go on podcasts, we write content, but we know that what we're offering to DDC brands is just such a big opportunity to them to be better run businesses, both from inventory and cash flow and profits, that there's thousands and thousands of brands that we're going to service over the next couple of years. Okay. Well, let's jump back to your story. So yeah, I guess when you're in Toronto and growing up, you said, again, you're doing kind of stuff on the side, but after you graduated high school, did you decide like, hey, I want to be a rabbi? Yeah. So it kind of, I grew up in that like Orthodox community where a lot of us, a lot of my friends were pursuing that, studying advanced Talmudic law, like I have a BA in Talmudic law, doing advanced studies around that. So it was kind of like going, I would say, with the trend of what my class and what my friends were doing. And as I was doing it, I loved it and enjoyed it. But I'm like, you know what? I think my passion might be elsewhere. And that's where like, you know, started dabbling on the side, but went full force, I guess around when I was 24. Okay. So when you graduate high school at 18, right? Were you a good student? Yeah, I was always a good student. I won't say I was like the top, you know, 1%, but I, I love to learn. I love reading. For me, it's just always being curious. I'm always a curious person. It doesn't give it some business or learning. Love asking questions, love understanding how things work. Yeah, you and me the same. And probably anyone who's listening, honestly, because like, even if you want to get into business, it's like, there's parts where it's fun and you're like learning and like, I can go forever when I'm learning. For me, when I start slowing down in business, it's like, because it's getting kind of monotonous, to be honest. And it, you know, I'm just like, feel like I'm not learning anything. And you're just fucking just, you know, trying to make things go. Because it doesn't have to be just even about business. It can be about health or it could be about wanting to travel somewhere or maybe you want to learn deeper psychology, which also can, you know, help in business and stuff. So it doesn't always just come back to business, but yeah, having that growth kind of mindset, if you will. So you're graduating 2006, right? So I guess the economy is doing well, I guess, at that point. Yeah, it's pre-2008. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, but it was about five years before, right? You turn 24 or so. And I don't know the correct term. Is it rabbi school or? Yeah, it's, yeah. I went to Rabbinical College of America. So it's like an advanced, let's call it college for rabbinical studies, where I spent four years, let's call it undergrad for this kind of space. And then I did another two years of advanced rabbinical studies to get my full rabbinical degree. <laughs> so I guess under, after undergrad, you still think you're going to be a rabbi? Yeah, yeah, I was still pursuing it. Yeah. I was doing it again. I had these businesses running on the side. Because they were seasonal. So I would run them usually this time of year, like September or October, which was a Jewish Holocaust Sukkot. So you got to live in like these outdoor kind of a tent structures. And many Jewish people around North America buy these structures. So back in the day, these structures were built, really going to Home Depot, buying wood panels and like building these outdoor structure. And I start working with a distributor that was manufacturing like a better version of it, like easily built. You don't have to go to Home Depot. You don't need to start building with nails and hammers. It's kind of like a modular type of product and kind of an easier to build version for this holiday, which was manufactured in China. And I'm like, hey, let me be your core distributor in Canada. This guy I met was in the States. So I think I was 18 when I started and it was seasonal, but we would do a lot of revenue. We had to deal with importing, we had to deal with taxes and containers. So like learned a lot of those early lessons of moving stuff around cross-border during that time. And then when I finished my degree, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to 
jump a little deeper into cross-border and importing. Was this called a SUKA, S-U-K-K-A-H? Am I saying that right? That's right. SUKA, exactly. See, again, I'm learning right now. Well, it's kind of cool because then I just looked at Google Images. I'm like, I didn't know if this was exactly what you're talking about. So as an Orthodox Jew, you're supposed to use one of these? Yeah. So there's a holiday called Sukkot during this time of year. And during that time, what Orthodox Jews, we eat in the Sukkah, we celebrate in the Sukkah. So imagine every family needs to, you know, Orthodox family builds the structure in their backyard. So if you would go to Home Depot, it probably costs you, could be up to $3,000. These stuff lasts like 20, 30 years, but you got to do that one-time investment of like 3,000 bucks. But then you got to build it yourself and you're buying these wooden panels and you're building frames. It's just like really annoying way of doing it, but that's how it was done for a long time. And then I met a guy in Florida that was importing. He started doing like kind of a no tool way of doing it. Like you just, it's a mechanism that kind of attach these walls with the mechanism or you could build it with the material base. And it just simplified this holiday for people. He was importing from China for a while. I'm like, hey, could I import it through you from China directly to Canada and let me take care of the Canadian market? He's like, great. I haven't touched the Canadian market or the, you know, the Jewish community here. Then I started doing that for a whole bunch of years, for like six, seven years. And interesting enough, the business still runs. I gave it to my brother and now actually my nephew is running it. So it stayed in the family. It still runs till today. Okay. And do you just eat dinner in one of these sukkahs? Yeah. So we, we, we do dinner, we do lunch, we invite family, kind of think of like a Thanksgiving dinner and lunch. So it's like big celebrations, but it's all outdoors. It looks like like seven days or so. Yeah. Okay. It's like a gazebo, I guess, if anyone's Googling, but just the three walls in one open spot. Exactly. That's probably the best way to you know describe it. Okay. So yeah, you, you were doing this. So that, was this your first thing like out of grad school that it seems like you were actually making, because when you say side businesses, I don't like people say that too. And I'm like, I don't know, are you just making 10, 20,000 net profit a year? No, we're, we're making pretty good money. We're doing like a few hundred K of revenue because they're expensive items, right? We wouldn't do that much volume, but every sale was quite large. The reason why it was side, because it wasn't full-time, it was just the seasonal that season. So while I was studying, I would take off six to eight weeks to deal with the imports, warehousing, delivery, sales, marketing. So it was like a full-fledged business in like a eight-week time frame, And that's it. And then you're kind of done to next year. Uh, what's the name of the brand? It was actually called Suka.ca. It was our Canadian. So S-U-K-K-A-H.ca is the Canadian website for the brand. I gave it over to my brother. And then eventually I have, I have a nephew that's early 20s and he took it over. Why didn't you just keep doing it? For me, I was getting into the other business, which was taking up all my time and ended up being a larger business than the side hustle. And I loved it. Like I was happy to like give it over, like, hey, you guys run it and make some money. And my only ask was if, if this keeps running, just keep in the family. So kind of went from brother to nephew. And I said, you know, once you're done, just give it to the next. We've got a big family and just, you know, keep in the family if we can. All right. So you said the other business was doing better or are you talking about browse? That's when I got, exactly. So then I eventually started browse, which wasn't a seasonal business. It's a full-time business. Like I was working on it every single day. We're doing pretty strong revenue. There's just like a bigger upside than a seasonal smaller business. So I essentially gave it to my brother at that point. Okay. That was 2012. You're 24 years old at that point. I guess maybe you're in college the whole time during the recession, if you will. So I, I don't know if you're seeing like downturns, even when you're trying to sell the sukas online. Was that business just growing the whole time and it didn't matter that there was a recession? It's a great question. Yeah, 2008 was tight for everyone. But if you think about it, a lot of people, so a lot of people travel for this holiday. 
could be Florida, New York, or Israel. And when the recession came, a lot of less people traveled. People stayed home. So historically, they may have traveled overseas or to the States for the holiday. Like, oh, we got to stay home. We got to buy a suitcase. So there was definitely that part of the market that opened up. And also in the early days, when I got started a little before 2008, I didn't know what I was doing, right? So I was like, didn't really know how to market. I didn't know how to create partnerships and like put up samples. So I was, I was newer to the game. So by the time 2008 came around, I knew what I was doing better. So I was able to, I was constantly growing that business, even though it may have been tighter times. So less people traveled, which was good for me. And I just knew what I was doing a little more by the time 2008 came around. But yeah, that, that was definitely crazy times. Well, how do you figure out how to do all this, even with the Suka thing and then going into Browse? I mean, the answer is I didn't know what the, I didn't know at all what I was doing. So this is the first time I imported a truck from the States for these Sukas. And these things are large, right? Like they're very heavy. Tell us the weight and size. So just a general. Yeah. So they're, I mean, it ranges, depends on what type of Suka you have. There's a few types. If you have a material-based Suka, probably weighs about 70 pounds, the box, because it comes, it's metal poles and you got the material that goes around it. If you're using the wood panel ones, I would say each panel weighs maybe 20 pounds, but lots of panels. So the first time I, so I ordered a truck, it was the first time I ordered a truck. It wasn't a huge truck, but I had my garage, my parents' garage. So we had this like decent sized truck pull into this small road, backing up into my parents' garage. The driver was so confused. He's like, this is your warehouse? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, where's your people unloading the truck? I'm like, it's me. What do you mean? And I spent, I think it was like six hours unloading the truck. Oh my gosh. And every single piece of the heavy stuff, I had my brothers to help me. It was definitely an interesting experience, but how it works. Like, you know, nothing in the beginning and eventually you eventually learn. So I didn't know anything. Made lots of mistakes. Hurt my back. I've actually had like back pain for years since that first shipment, but you just got to try it and do it. But I guess, you know, we always have these, whether you're doing your first deal on your new business or, or whatever else, basically just having the balls and confidence to do it. Like, even if you don't end up making money on it, that you took that first step where especially it's scary because you're having big things come that way. And you're like, am I doing this right? Or am I getting screwed up? But I know you said you didn't know anything, but whatever you learned, were you just Googling or going in? I don't think it were really too much Facebook groups or maybe that just started. Like, how did you learn educationally how to even set up a website for this and, and all that other stuff? Oh yeah, the website came years later. I didn't have a website probably for the first four years. It was all paper advertisements. So first it was asking like, again, anything, friends and family. So, hey, I need to import some from the States. Who do I talk to? And they would say, you need a customs broker. How do I find a customs broker? I know a guy that imports a lot of them. You should talk to him. Call that guy. All right. That's like the customs side. Marketing. I didn't do any online marketing. I was doing paper marketing. And I was just printing flyers, like not fancy flyers, black and white, and just going around to every grocery store in the area, going around to every store that made sense. I actually had, uh, my first year, I think I had one of my most amazing lessons. I think as an early business owner, I knocked on a door of a Judaica store. So they sold like other Jewish books and stuff like that. And I said, hey, like, could I, you know, hang up my sign in your store, right? I'm just starting this new business. The guy that owns the store, his name is actually Izzy Kaplan. He's like, he passed away since. He's like the nicest human being in the world. And he's like, hey, come to my office. He's like, you should know I'm, I also sell sukkahs. I'm your competitor. She's like, I'm not going to let, I can't let you hang it up in the store, but I want to give you a blessing. You should do so well because there's enough business out there for everyone to do well. 
And that was my first year. I had no idea what I was doing. I knocked on the door of, you know, so-called competitor in this space. But you know what? Like if you work hard, and, and that was a lesson I always told, you know, my brother took over and my nephew took over after him. It's like you start a business, there's going to be competitors. Don't be afraid about it. There's a big world out there. There's a lot of money to be made and just do the hard work. But that was an early lesson, first year of like, maybe don't knock on the door of the person selling it as well. And I, you know, again, I was so new to this. I had no idea what I was doing. But to me, these are all lessons, like things you make mistakes on, things that you do while you build it. It's all lessons and you compound that. It's important for everyone to know, like, yeah, you didn't start off knowing this website stuff. Like we're, we're seeing stuff that for like 15 years in the making of where you are today and how you kind of have Portless. And it was nice, I guess, of the guy to sit down and even talk to you or, or made, and it sounds like you became a friend with them too, right? Yeah. I never got very close to them, but to me, that was probably the most, one of the impactful things as a young entrepreneur could hear, because it's not, it's not always all or nothing. It's like you work hard, there's business for everyone. And another thing it taught me was working with good people. So again, I didn't actually work with them. I'm like, in general, when I hire people and, and when we grow our team, I want to make sure that you're a good person that I want to actually work on this business. Sure, you could do business in a way which is cutthroat and nasty and everyone hates you. And there's a lot of big businesses built that way. I'm just don't want to be in that business and work with those type of people. And when you meet someone where so-called your competitor, but super respectful and you know excited for you as well, that to me was just such an impactful moment, both from lessons and learning from him and repeating that story whenever I meet other entrepreneurs that are like scared of competition. So what did you learn when you started Browse and kind of maybe the first few years there? Yeah. So Browse, <laughs> Browse had a lot of its own learning, you know? I was going into the business like, oh, I had this side hustle. I bring stuff from over cross board all the time. There was a lot of big lessons. I'll give you some early big ones. One is in the bucket of thinking outside the box. And one of the bucket is, you know, so-called balls, or I call it chutzpah, is like not being afraid to knocking on any door. So one lesson was I learned early on when I was in Canada. Let me give you an example. I live in Toronto. To ship something down the block in Toronto costs $8. To ship something to the West Coast, think Vancouver or whatever, 12 to 15 bucks. Yukon territory is even more than that. However, if you ship something from Buffalo, New York, USA to Toronto, it is like five bucks and not much more to ship to British Columbia. So I somehow fell into that because I was working cross-border for a US 3PLNS. And I'm like, one second, it is cheaper to ship into Canada from the States than from within Canada. And when I saw that, so my first cross-border move was- That's why you got that 3PL, right? Well, even before the 3PL, when I was, this is before Pennsylvania, I was printing USPS labels in Toronto, putting in a car, driving to the States using section 321 import duty free, dropping off at USPS and shipping it back to all my Canadian customers, which sounds crazy. And it, it blew my mind of like, one second, there's cross-border world here. And why was this the story? And essentially what the story was is Canada Post by its mandate for the local Canada Post infrastructure needs to be a profitable entity. So Canada Post generates profit every year versus USPS is not a profitable entity. It actually loses a few hundred million dollars a year, but it spurs the a massive economy for, for e-commerce and there's billions of dollars generated in taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But USPS had its own agreement coming into Canada that allowed us to get better rates shipped from Buffalo to the States. So to me, it was like, just because everyone ships within Canada with Canada Post, it doesn't mean you need to. And if you think outside the box and you question everything, and, and honestly, just to be curious, if you're curious, you'll find opportunity. 
And that's what I was. I was curious. And then now it's a huge business. Now there's a company called Chit Chat Express and they do what I did by myself in a, in a van. They do it with trucks. They pick up pallets and pallets of packages from people, drive it to Buffalo, drop it off, comes right back into Canada. It's a massive industry today. So to me, that was a lesson of don't take anything for the way it is. Be curious, ask lots of questions, and don't be afraid to try anything out. Yeah, like trying out Portless. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that was, you know, we don't know what you try. And we tried. And for us, it's way bigger than our consumer business. Then another big lesson was what you said, having the balls to, to do stuff or well, I, I like to call chutzpah. So it was actually 2020 and we were scaling like crazy. We were, we were doing insane revenue in Q4. I think at one point it was like almost a million dollars a day during Q4, during like a tight period, Black Friday, second Monday. And if anyone has experience with Facebook advertising, especially those days, it's a huge pain in the ass. So you have these bots that would scan your account. If for whatever reason they saw that you were doing something wrong, they would deactivate your account. There's not a human doing it. It was literally a bot that Facebook put together to decide if your account is good or bad. And it was middle of our craziest time. And ad account went down. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose like literally millions of revenue because you got to submit paperwork, got to submit this, and it goes to review. So I was talking to actually one of my cousins that is actually an investor, one of my angel investors back in the day. And he's like, why don't you email Cheryl Sandberg? I'm like, I don't know Cheryl Sandberg. She's like, who cares? It was actually during this time, it was actually during the high holiday season of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And he's like, just Google her email, see if you can find it and cold email her and like wish her happy holidays and hopefully she opens the email. So I did that. And I, I was going online. I, I put like 10 email addresses in a BCC and I'm like, happy holidays, you know, thinking maybe maybe she'll think it's like one of her friends, wish her happy holidays. Literally, I, I don't remember it was 10 emails, like let's say nine out of 10 bounced. But one email went through because we were big advertisers. We weren't small. We just didn't have an account rep. And she responded. And she introduced me to her, her chief of staff, which introduced me to the head of Facebook account management in Austin, which then eventually signed us an account manager and kind of got us going again. And to me, that was a lesson learned. Like one of the many lessons, like you can't be afraid to try stuff. The worst thing that she would have said was no. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. Great stories. Again, I, I think we're, we're cut from the same cloth. I'm the exact same way. Like you don't know what you don't know. Don't be scared to send an email. Worst thing is going to happen. They write something bad to you, like F you, F off, whatever. And you're like, okay, well, that's just not a happy person. So if you don't try, then no one's going to try for you. Your brother's not going to try for you, your grandpa, your dad. It's kind of like they showed you the way. It's like, this is what I have to do to be successful. It's like, okay, if I have to lose weight, I have to probably stop eating as bad as I have been, or I need to start going to the gym or both, right? So it's like doing these things that you know you have to do in order to get to where you want to go. So Exactly. And, and, and by the way, it's a muscle, right? Like when you get started, it's brutal when you get told no or someone says like, I don't want to invest in your company or F off as a brand. It's a muscle. And it's like, to your point, like, what's the downside, right? The worst thing is that guy, you know, is a miserable person. He's still a miserable person. Or they said no, but it's definitely a muscle. You got, you got to start it to gain that muscle. Right. And so over the, those first five years, it seems like things were going great. Yeah. So the first five years of the consumer business, even a bit longer than that, we were scaling over hundred percent year over year. So I didn't take any outside capital, grew it to about 5 million revenue. 
that was 100% growth for a couple of years. Then it took a small amount of outside capital and kept growing it pretty much 100%. Took a larger venture funding after an angel round. And then, so, so the big thing is, so what's the punch in the face, right? Things don't go good forever was Apple privacy updates. So if anyone has been living through direct consumer marketing from 2020, 21, you know, on beyond, Apple released this massive privacy update that companies like TikTok, Axe, Facebook, Instagram, they can't track you anymore. So it used to be you go on their you go on Facebook, you click a link, there's a cookie on the website. Facebook knows exactly what you did on the website, knows what you purchased or knows what you looked at. And they're building this data on you. And then like, okay, because the next time they saw you clicked on a bunch of shoe companies, they're going to send you more shoe companies. And they know if you made a transaction and they know if you added to cart. So data was incredible for marketing companies. And then Facebook did that release and everything changed. Facebook had no idea which customers were clicking or not that they clicked ads, if they made a transaction on the ad. So they didn't know which customers were buying. They didn't know what they were interested in. They didn't know how to give you a feedback loop that your ad was even successful. So it was like an entire, I would say really industry. I would say anyone that has been in DTC during that time that ran paint ads. So not Google, Google never got affected because Google is search intent-based marketing and it never needed cookies to know what the customer wanted because it was keyword-based. But if anyone did marketing on any of the social platforms, it was just a massive change. And that's when we start going deeper into supply chain. So I think another important lesson was when things don't go your way, you could, again, fight it forever and fight it till your company's dead, or you could pivot because you got to be agile. You got to be like, okay, there's a new world today. What do I got to do different? I got to increase my margins. I got to have better cash flow. I got to access new markets. And honestly, thankfully, it led us to Portless because we just went deeper into supply chain, deeper into logistics, which allowed this model, allow us to do it for all DDC companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but before you made that transition, I guess that's why I said the first five years of your company here, you weren't doing any of the supply chain stuff, right? It's about year six or so. Well, after you met the Alibaba CFO, right? Yeah, so I was doing, until 2016, I was importing by container. Then from 2016 on, I was doing cross-border stuff. And that's when things really start taking off. So we didn't start with an infrastructure right away. We started bringing on sellers kind of on a marketplace model. But we started going deeper into out of marketplace and what I call controlled marketplace. And then over the coming years, I would say starting 2019, we got deeper and deeper into logistics. And then when iOS 14 came out, Apple Privacy Update, we went full-fledged into logistics and kind of took over the entire supply chain. Right. But before that, right when we're putting our toes into the logistics water of what eventually became portless, what it is today, but again, it was just for your company. When you were doing that, just walk me through, because earlier on, you said you're working with people in China and then some developers. Just tell me how that process goes on. Because again, at least this other stuff before, now that I'm looking back and understand, it's like, you kind of understood manufacturing a lot. But if you're building like some type of tech to put on top of your website to help the marketplace, like just tell me how you figured that out. Great question. So I'm not a software engineer. I'm not even, or, or wasn't originally a logistics expert. I know a lot more now. To get started, it's back to the us. It's the team, it's the people. So early on, I went to networking events and I met a guy that was a co-founder and a CTO of another company. Real details, like what networking events? You know what? It was meetup.com. I don't know if they're still popular, but it was a Toronto tech scene. Try to remember, go a little deeper. I think it was under the bucket of retention marketing. 
So you had marketers that went there, you had software engineers that went there, and I was getting in the brand place and I was trying to learn more about retention marketing from a tech perspective, where I met essentially this guy that was a CTO. He just left his other company and he was learning to learn more about the consumer space because he wasn't a CTO in a e-commerce business. He was a CTO in a kind of an online SaaS business. So I was telling about what I was doing and how like I'm going to be raising money soon. And he was just like floored about, because this, this is still the advantages of cash flow. And again, the delivery times weren't as good those days, but all the advantages still exist. And he's like, that's incredible. He's like, if you ever decide to go and start building a full tech stack, let me know. That's when I got sophisticated in tech. Prior to that, I found one developer that lives in my community that I paid him for after hour work. Sorry, I'm going even further back now, back to 2012. When I really got started, he used to work after his main job hours. So he would start late at night. He would start at 10 p.m. after he put his kids to bed and he'd work to like 1 a.m. And I used to have to stay up to work with them. So that's, that's how I originally started. It was one developer and he made a lot of mistakes. He built my original website on WordPress. WordPress is not built for e-commerce. He hacked a WordPress right. So within like probably six months, we busted out of that, which then we moved to Magento. So I started with like a random developer that happened to be my community. And I'm like, could you do this for me? And he made lots and lots and lots of mistakes. He just, again, wasn't an e-commerce expert. But then eventually when I started to get more revenue, he was able to get me to, let's call it a minimal viable product. And then once I start revenue coming in, I start hiring a better firm that took care of it. So I didn't know how to build it. I just found someone that did. It was really bad in the early days. Like it sucked, but it, it was good enough to work. And when once there's traction, you take some of the profits on the revenue and just reinvest it. And then eventually when I start going really deep into tech, I was able to recruit a CTO from another company. Yeah. But let's just say that first guy, after you started building on Magento, right? Instead of WordPress, the tech stuff, like what was that even doing versus before? Yeah. So before Magento on WordPress, like the site would just crash because WordPress is built to be a blog site, not an e-commerce site. But there was like this one WordPress extension that someone hacked to make it work. So WordPress was the wrong decision. And when it was crashing, I said, listen, you built me on WordPress. It sucks. It is what it is. I said, you got to pick a platform for me that's going to work as I scale. And this is even before Shopify for me wasn't really on the radar. And I always wanted to be outside Canada. I always wanted an international play. So I needed a platform that, A, I said, it's got to be scalable and I got to be sold to other countries. So the next major platform that had a lot of history behind it was Magento. So he's like, okay, I found Magento. I'm going to build it on Magento. I'm going to build an MVP on Magento. He built the MVP on Magento, but he, he wasn't really a Magento expert, but he got it enough to be live. Then I went on a site called Upwork.com and I found a developer based in Pakistan that was a Magento expert. So I ended up hiring him to take over my local guy because my local guy is like, I'll be honest, I'm not a Magento expert. I get you live. I can't build custom stuff on this. But then I found on Upwork.com, this one developer based in Pakistan, and then I used him for years. He was with me all the way until we transitioned to Shopify eventually, but we ended up building a ton of customization on Magento. And people that are familiar with Magento understand the pain of that because Magento is very connected. Every time you do a custom update, everything could get affected. Unlike Shopify, which is like download an app and upload an app, it's like, doesn't affect the main infrastructure. Magento was, it was scalable. It was just very painful from a tech stack perspective, but that was the evolution of how I went from piece to piece. 
again, trying to look at the positive. The good thing is if he was great at first, you probably wouldn't have learned all the tech stuff like that WordPress sucked or that Magento is good. But then like, I just learned like, oh, okay, if you make one update, it could still screw up everything. So if you find someone who's just ahead of you, when you're getting started, no matter what, we all don't have a lot of money. So you can't just go get the best guy, but you're also learning. And then that way, when you talk to the next people, you have way more education to understand like, okay, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. So yeah, it's good you're able to figure that out. And then like you said, when this guy was just building it for your company or the next firm that you hire, that's a little different than if you start building portless for these other companies, even if it was the first seven or eight, like you talked about, I'm sure it was just one extra company at first. And then you had more and more, but I mean, that has to be totally different than what you had on your back end just for your company at the time browse. Yeah, but this is years later. Like I had a pretty decent understanding of technology and Shopify and integrations. So Shopify is a great platform to connect apps to. So we just basically created a private app. Okay, gotcha. That can easily integrate. So like Shopify makes this very easy because Shopify is built for corners like us to build very effectively on their platform. We do have some customers that are not built on Shopify. We have customers built on NetSuite or SellerCloud or ShipStation or all these other types of stacks, which we have an, like an API side to our business. But all of that, this is because I was a consumer of Shopify eventually for a bunch of years. I understood the, the tech stack a lot better. So we knew how to build towards it. Everyone can tell that I don't have a huge e-commerce background, but I can I understand the basics of it. Yeah. I mean, you'd be able to do an app and just build it on top of Shopify and then basically just rename the app if you want it or have it be the same app and just use somebody else use it. Then that's awesome. Then that makes it much easier. It wasn't like you had to redo everything from scratch kind of. So exactly. It's much easier to build on top of. Okay. And so I guess that's kind of where you've come today. Like you said, as far as the transition to doing portless full-time, I don't know if you have anything else as far as that transition or anything else we can learn from here as we kind of close down the story. No, I think to what you said, you always got to be open to trying new things and one door closes, that means opportunity for others. And that's the attitude and approach I took to the business. And for us, it's hard to see it. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. In the moment, it's tough, right? Building any business is so hard, but you got to basically have persistence and be able to push through the tough times. And usually opportunity comes out of that. So, and that's what for us, like, again, we built this massive consumer business. It was tons of lessons for us. Marketing got hard, but it just made us go deeper into fulfillment. And now we believe we have the opportunity to really disrupt direct-to-consumer businesses. Like they could not disrupt, really enable, making every DTC business better, healthier cash flow businesses. So persistence, take the learnings, apply them, adapt, and then have the chutzpah to keep knocking on doors and trying new things. I think that for me was the key lesson in this transition. Well, how about personally, as far as staying motivated? Because, you know, as a solo founder, and I know we use we a lot in this interview and whatnot, but do you ever have times where you aren't as motivated versus you are super motivated? And like, what's your work week look like? Just kind of walk me through the entrepreneurial experience as a solo founder, even today. Great question. I would say there's two things that's very helpful for me. So it's fine. I find entrepreneurs like to control. They like to control their destiny, they like to control the business. I mean, they not, might not be doing everything, but when things don't go well in business, you feel like you're losing control. So what I did personally was when things were so-called, it felt like during iOS, Apple 14, like marketing was like, you're losing control. Like, how does that work? I actually went very heavy into controlling my health. So I started going to gym every single day. I started taking care of my physical health, which is really, really good for me. So one was for me, that was an outlet that was super healthy. 
And another thing for me personally was, again, I'm, I'm actually a rabbi, right? Rabbinical degree and uh, Orthodox Jew. For me, I also took the approach of there's only so much you can control. So if you're giving your all, you're doing everything, you're being persistent, you're doing the work. For me, it's you could only do so much that you can control, but at some point, it's really out of my hands. So I think that's the attitude I took. Like, I'm going to come to work every day. I'm going to give my everything and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to be persistent and I'm going to grind and I'm going to adapt. But at the end of the day, this wasn't meant to be, then it won't be meant to be. And if it was meant to be, then it will be meant to be. So I think from like a mental health perspective, that was, a, that was the attitude I took. And I start controlling a little bit more of my physical health, which was a huge, huge help during that, let's call it tough times. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you talking about that. I mean, we didn't talk about, I mean, did you have any personal hardships at all during your whole story? I haven't had any personal hardships. I'm married to three kids. So to me, that's everything, right? I get to come home. You have like kids jumping on you. And to me, I love that. So business is a big part of my life, but it's not the foundation of my life. The foundation of my life is my family and my kids and my health. So having that was really great because if your entire life is business, that could be hard when things don't go well. So for me, I was growing my family during this time and it wasn't all hard times. There was a lot of great times, but there were big pivotal moments where after a hard day, I could still come home and be like, you know, this is what matters to me. So I'm thankful, at least in a personal life, things were very good. Well, great mindset. And thank you for sharing your story here. I guess if someone wanted to say thank you again for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, definitely. So if you want to learn more about us, portlist.com, there's tons to learn. Reach out to us there. We have a team. We'll get back to you and learn more about your business, see if we can help you leverage our model. And if you want to follow, at least for me, from a content perspective, I'm on Twitter or X and on LinkedIn, constantly posting supply chain, inventory strategy, and just you know history on supply chain on those platforms. And anyone that messages me, I get back to everyone. Great. Well, thank you again, Izzy. And then like he said, you can visit him on all the social media sites and should get back to you. So thank you again for taking the time to share your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was super awesome. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now.